very special guest. We're all humbled tonight to have the privilege of having her in our service here at uh, Victory Church. Yesterday, she spoke at the Voice of the Martyrs Conference, and from the reports that I received, the testimony that she shared, and she shared it worldwide, uh, really impacted the lives of those that were here. I was reading this book. This is one of her books, In the Presence of My Enemies, that talks about uh, that talks about her experience and her husband's experience, Martin, uh, during their their enslavement and being captured for for a little more than a year and what went on with it. But this was a, a quote from uh, interesting USA Today. It says the Burnhams, uh, under torturous conditions, befriended their guards, comforted their fellow hostages, and kept their faith in a God who seemed to have abandon them. And then there was another quote it relates that people were amazed that they could endure such hardships and even more that they could respond to their captors as they did. What caused Martin to thank the guards who chained him to a tree at night? And in the final days, Martin and, 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 and Gracia spent together their thoughts focused on a passage of Scripture that says, serve the Lord with gladness, come before His presence with thanksgiving. Martin said, we might not leave this jungle alive, but at least we can leave this world serving the Lord with gladness, and we can serve Him right here where we are with gladness. That kind of spirit only comes right from the throne of God. You're going to get to hear her. She's here. I'm going to ask you to give her a good hand clap of welcome. Gracia, will you stand before we show the video? Look at these wonderful people. Give it up for her. Would you, everybody, what? What a great, great ministry. Amen. Thank you. I always want to compliment you when you respond that way to a special guest. I think it's appropriate. I think if there were a president here, and I, I, I admire the office of the President of the United States. But let me tell you something. If you want to admire someone, admire someone like that right there who has served God, that kind of honor is always due and appreciated. Amen? So here's what's going to happen. A video is going to be shown. It'll tell the story. It'll talk about her books. So just pay attention, fasten your seatbelt, and get ready to be challenged by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, everybody. Here we go. At the end of May 2001, American missionaries to the Philippines, Martin and Gracia Burnham, made the fateful decision to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary in a secluded resort on the island of Palawan. About four in the morning, there was pounding on the door, bang, 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 and at first I thought it was a drunk guard or something, and um, Martin kind of knew we were in trouble. And just as he got to the door, it burst open, and in came three guys with M16s, and I think one of them had a mask on. The masked men were Abu Sayyaf, a militant Muslim terrorist group with ties to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Along with 20 other guests, the Burnhams were forced from their room at gunpoint and taken many miles across the open sea to the Muslim stronghold of Basilan. For more than a year, the Burnhams were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading capture from the Philippine military under the total control of their captors. They were the enemy, and we never forgot that they were the bad guys. But on the other hand, they were our family. They were the people that we'd lived with for a year, and hiked with, and starved with. And you got to know the personalities of the guys. Soon after the events of September 11th, the news media took greater notice of the plight of Martin and Gracia and kept their story in the national headlines. As a result, millions of people around the globe began praying diligently for their safe release. I had no idea the magnitude of how many were praying, but on towards the end, when things would be bad, I even remember that, that last day of the um, June 7, that last gun battle, we'd been hiking, sat down for a rest, and I just looked over at Martin and I said, people are praying for us. And he said, I know. 
Throughout their captivity, the Burnhams had lived through 16 different gun battles between the Abu Sayyaf and the Philippine military. On the afternoon of June 7th, over a year since their abduction, the bullets erupted once more. I dropped from the hammock, and before I even got to the ground, I was shot in the leg. And I kind of slid down the mountain. It was so steep. I slid down a little bit and came to rest beside Martin. And I looked over at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. During the gun battle, you know, the grenades were going off all around us and the shooting. But I just kept thinking every moment was my last moment. And um, sometime during that time, I just felt Martin's body just get real heavy, a heaviness. Tragically, Martin was killed during their fight. Gracia was rescued and returned home amidst a national spotlight. Was there no way Gracia or Martin could escape? Sean Hannity, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Well, it started as a romantic getaway for Martin and Gracia Burnham, American missionaries working in the Philippines. But for her first daytime interview, I want to thank her for having the courage to be here today. Gracia, good to have you with us. Thank you. The outpouring of support was beyond anything Gracia could have imagined, especially at Martin's funeral. I still didn't realize the, how many people were involved and praying and would want to go to Martin's funeral. And I looked around in the crowd and I saw some of my friends from college there, saw some of our coworkers there. I thought, all my friends are here. It was a good day. Martin would have been proud of his funeral. Gracia wanted to honor Martin's memory and have the opportunity to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who prayed for their protection and safe return. During her time of recovery, Gracia wrote, In the presence of my enemies, a riveting personal account of her and Martin's ordeal with the terrorists. This emotionally moving, powerfully inspirational account of faith through adversity landed on the New York Times bestseller list, and millions of people came to know Gracia in a more personal way. Now a much sought after speaker, Gracia travels throughout the country speaking to audiences about the lessons and spiritual truths she learned while in captivity, and how God continues to sustain her and the children in the aftermath of Martin's death. Gracia continues to reflect on her ordeal and the lessons God taught her. To Fly Again features Gracia's most recent thoughts and reflections concerning the challenges we face when we lose control of some aspect of life and how we can find hope in God's grace. Gracia Burnham lived through a real nightmare of fear, captivity, physical trauma, and devastating loss. Yet she has survived the ordeal more convinced of God's grace than ever before. Gracia truly has lived in the presence of her enemies, and with God's help, has learned to fly again. Good evening. Thank you. I've never spoken to more wonderful people. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for the music. We could go home right now, and it was worth coming, wasn't it? That was wonderful music, and I thank you so much. One morning, about a month into our captivity, we were all packed and ready to mobile. That's the word we used to move out or to be on the move. And we were new at this hostage thing, and we heard that the military was near, so they told us to pack up and be ready. The leaders were all sitting, having a meeting, and they met for so long that some of the guys got impatient, and they started setting their hammocks back up again. All of a sudden, from across the field came soldiers running towards us with their guns blaring, and we hit the ground and began to crawl, much like I'm sure you've seen Marines in training, trying to get away. And as the Abu Sayyaf would fire at the military, we would get up and run. When there was a volley of gunfire our direction, we would drop and crawl. We got far enough away to head off down a trail into the jungle, but 
ahead of us, there was gunfire. So we headed over that way. There was gunfire down that trail. We headed over there. There was gunfire. A helicopter appeared from nowhere and began crisscrossing the field we were in, and we realized we were surrounded. We stayed all day long in that field. There would be sporadic gun battles all day long. The sun beat down on us. There was no shelter or shade. We had several wounded that day, and they bandaged them up as well as they could and put them where else? Right beside Martin and me, there was this one kid, I was sure he was dying. He was one of the ones who got impatient and he put his hammock back up so he wasn't ready to run during that gun battle. And I reacted the, the way I would react many times after that during our year of captivity when we were running for our lives or we were in a tense situation, I got diarrhea. There was long grass nearby and I just kept making trips into the grass. A good thing happened that day. We got a backpack. A few guys died in that early morning gun battle, and they started passing out their stuff. And a backpack came down the row of guys where I was seated, so I took it. And I put everything in there that we owned at the time. There was a sheet I'd taken from a hospital several days before, our toothbrush that we were sharing a couple of shirts, and when night fell, we just started to walk. We walked right out of there, and we were to learn that one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never had gun battles at night. Well, I still had the runs, and every time we would stop, I would go do what I needed to do. During one stop, I left my backpack on the ground by Martin. He was sitting on a log and went to go to the bathroom. And as I was stepping back on the trail, the guys suddenly said, go, 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 move. Well, I thought the military found us. And I ran and got behind Martin and hurried down the trail with everyone else. And I remember thinking, oh, I feel so light and free right now when I suddenly realized I'd left my backpack back by the log. So I turned around to go get it. It was right there, but a new guy had joined our group that night. He was big, he was mean looking, I didn't know him. And he lowered his weapon and said, you go. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just gonna get my backpack. We could both see it. He said, no, you go. And I had to turn and follow Martin down the trail, and I just totally fell apart. I started to sob. I said, Martin, I am so sorry. I have just lost everything we own. And Martin paused and turned and looked at me for just an instant, and he said, Gracia, I forgive you. Now you need to forgive yourself. Many of you have said, we prayed for you. We followed your story, and we prayed for you. And I wonder how many of you were praying for us right when we needed it. I wonder if you were praying for me in that moment when I was trying to forgive myself for doing something so stupid. And I want to thank you for your prayers. Every time you prayed for us, we needed it. And what would we have done without you? I call this my worst day followed by my best day. Because the next day we got to a little Muslim village and they killed a cow. So we had plenty to eat. And then a box made its way into that village from our new tribe's mission headquarters, some 600 miles away on a totally different island. How did that happen? And in that box was everything I'd left behind the night before, plus letters from our children telling us they kind of told us in code that they were back in the United States with their grandparents and that they were safe. We were in that village for just a few hours, a pretty short window of time for a box to get in there, don't you think? And I have a feeling that people were praying, and I think I'm a living testimony of what prayer can do. Mm. People sometimes ask, what was the hardest thing about being a hostage? The hardest thing for me was, I saw what I was really like. In one swift moment in time, everything I had, except Martin, was taken away from me. And when everything's gone and you're in an uncomfortable position, you see what's really in your heart. 
I was born into a loving Christian family. I became a believer in Jesus at an early age. I married this terrific guy who had an incredible gift of piloting airplanes, and we decided we wanted to make a difference in the world. So we packed up and we left the American dream, and we went to the Philippines where Martin flew food and medicine and cargo and people into some of the most primitive places in the world, and I was a pretty good person. Thought I was anyway, but in the jungle. I came face to face with a gratia I didn't want to see. I saw a me that I didn't even want to believe existed. I saw a hateful gratia. There were days I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I saw a covetous gratia when we were starving and I saw someone with food and they ate it and didn't share it with us. I coveted what they had. I was filled with envy at them. I saw a despairing gratia. Nobody cares about us anymore. This has gone on for so long, everyone's forgotten us. I saw a faithless gratia. Here is a journal entry that I scribbled one day on some borrowed paper using a pen that barely worked, and this is not pretty. This was a very hard day for me. Why does God keep me here to suffer day after day? I got almost hysterical in the afternoon. Martin tells me not to give up. I've tried to be a good hostage and be patient, and where has it gotten me? Eight and a half months and still here. God is pleased to have me suffer, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is a discerner that looks at our hearts and exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything's open and exposed before his eyes. And, and we might look together on the outside. And we might have a whole lot of props that keep life going well for us. Here in America, we've got lots of props, don't we? Beautiful families, lovely homes, careers, money. But God sees what we are inside. But God's good. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust, and he loves us, and he's on our side when we're weak and we're needy, and God didn't wait for me to get my act together there in the jungle. Even as I complained at him for keeping us there for so long, he started to work in my heart. I asked Martin one day, where is the love, the joy, the peace, the contentment? You know, all those things that are supposed to characterize believers in Jesus, where are those things? Because I'm looking at myself. I see the bad and the worse, and there is no good. Martin said, love, joy, peace. Those aren't things you can make happen in your own heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's ask for them. Well, I had tried and failed to find those things in myself for months, so we started to pray and ask God to work good things in us. And it seems like we were either running for our lives from the Philippine military who were trying to rescue us for days and nights on end, totally exhausted, or we were in what we thought was a safe place, and we were hiding out, and we were laying low, and we were totally bored. And every once in a while during those days and weeks of boredom, a magazine or something to read would make its way into camp. And we loved that. It gave us something to do. We especially liked Reader's Digest. We would read them till they fell apart. I would read them aloud to Martin. He would read them aloud to me. We really liked the jokes. And one day Martin read this one to me. It's called Writer's Block. Having encouraged her class of 11-year-olds to use descriptive language in the story she had just asked them to write, my wife was disappointed when one boy used the adjective big to describe a castle. She asked the boy to be, be a bit more creative and told him to rewrite the sentence. Minutes later, he was back at her desk. This time, the sentence read, I went into the castle, which was big, and when I say big, I mean big. Yeah, well, we laughed too. A day or so later, Martin said, Gracia, I've been thinking about that joke and about something Jesus said. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. And I think when he said all, he meant all. He didn't mean all but the bad guys holding you hostage. And I watched Martin start to serve those guys. 
There was this one kid, 57, that probably wasn't really his name, but that's what we called him, 57. His job was to carry the M57 through the jungle. And M57 is heavy weaponry. It's a four or five foot long metal tube type weapon. And during a gun battle, they would have this, have this tripod thing. They put it on. This is the blonde description of a 57. And they would put the mortar in the front and, you know, shoot it, in our case, at the military. Well, 57 was always in a bad mood. I told Martin, I called him 57 because for 57 days in a row, he'd been in a bad mood. One day, we were in a gun battle. We had some casualties. So did the military. The Abu Sayyaf killed a medic, a point man, and a radio man, which meant we gained a medical bag, a weapon, and a radio. Well, the next day, when nobody was looking, Martin and I kind of went through that medical bag, and we sort of lifted some things we thought we were going to need in the future, some pain reliever, some antibiotics, some anti-diarrhea medicine. And we hid that away amongst our stuff. Well, we learned that 57 suffered from headaches. That's why he was always in a sour mood. And every time we would see him start to rub his temples, Martin would take him some of our stash of pain reliever. That kid's attitude towards us changed totally. Not long after that, they sent 57 out on a striking force. A striking force is a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. We never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them. When 57 came back to camp, he was all smiles when he saw Martin. He gave him that two-cheeked Muslim greeting. As we prayed, God began giving us the victories within ourselves that we were desperately asking him for. He changed me in the jungle. He gave us love for them. We began to be concerned for them. He used everyday occurrences to show us their neediness. Like a conversation I had with Nadim one day. Nadim was a young guy maybe 16, 18 years old, and he spoke enough English so we could communicate a little bit with him. One of the requirements of a Muslim is they're supposed to read their Quran every day. But when the Abu Sayyaf would read their Quran, they didn't read it silently to themselves like we would read a book. They read it aloud. Only they didn't just read it. They had this beautiful sing-song, minor key, haunting chant like song that they did and one would start reading and they would all think oh I haven't done my Quran reading today and they would all start in different books different chapters different tunes I called it choir practice I kind of figured if the military really wanted to find us and rescue us they just needed to open their ears during Quran reading one day after Nadim was finished his reading I said hey what did you just read? And his eyes lit up. He said, oh, I just read my favorite psalm. I said, really? What does it say? He said, I don't know. It's in Arabic, and I don't speak Arabic. I was shocked. I said, Nadim, you're reading words you don't understand? The reason it was his favorite psalm is he'd read it so many times he didn't have to think about it anymore when he read it. I said, you know what you need to do? You need to get a Koran that's been translated into your dialect and then you'll know what you're reading. He said, oh, oh no ma'am, then it would be corrupted. And I realized that Nadim is basing his whole life and eternity on a book he's never read and is not likely to read. How's Nadim going to hear the gospel without a preacher? We need some preachers. Some people willing to go to the hard places. Oh, duh. Maybe that's why we were in that situation. To be a witness to some lost guys. Do we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest as long as it doesn't inconvenience me and mess up my comfortable life? Here's a quote I found 
on Facebook of all places by a famous missionary, C.T. Studd, who could have had a comfortable life playing world-class cricket in England, but instead chose hard places. He said, some people like to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Working within a yard of hell is not going to be a pleasant place. There will be lots of opposition there, but we need some people willing to go to the hard places, and hard places is what's left in the world. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach because they're isolated. There are some 2,000 language groups who have not one verse of Scripture in their dialects. Many have never had anyone from the outside come into their world and tell them anything. They don't know the basics of clean drinking water, much less what the gospel is. Working in hard places is what Ethnos 360 does. Ethnos 360 is the new name for the organization formerly known as New Tribes Mission. That's the mission group that we were with, I've been with for over 30 years. For 75 years, NTM, Ethnos 360 now, has been working in isolated villages, and there's still a lot to do. The job has to be done. The last tribe, the last man, and we need quality people to help us take the gospel there. You know, God has always picked certain people to do a difficult work. I don't have to convince you with this job. God's going to pick some of you. Do you have the faith, the courage, the urging to say, God, do you want me? Do you want my life? Do you want to use me to make a difference in the world? A long-term sign-me-up difference, not to go on a short-term mission trip, but a lifelong career missionary. And to some of you, God's going to say, yes, that's what I have for you. If you feel called to some special, special missionary work this evening, Please visit with your pastor or your youth pastor or me. We can help you get started down that path, down the right trail. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach, not because they're isolated, but because of their ideology. They aren't going to be open to what you have to say, and it may not be a very safe place for you to live. But we need some people willing to go to the hard places Maybe your job is not to go. Maybe you're to stay here and pray. I heard someone say not long ago, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. You can have a worldwide ministry with any people group that God burdens your heart with without ever leaving your living room. Pray, pray, pray. Have you heard the phrase, prayer needs no passport? At the back, stop by and look at the Ethnos 360 things, things that you can pick up so you can be praying for the needs in isolated tribal villages. If you want to keep up with me, sign up so you'll start getting the mail out from me. There's lots of ways to pray back there. But we need some people praying for missionary works all over the world because prayer on this end is where the power comes on that end. To have a fruitful ministry Missionaries have got to have people praying for them. I talked with a lady um, one day after I spoke. She was waiting in line to get her book signed, and she said to me, Gracia, you know what I do when I can't sleep at night? Um, I don't count sheep anymore. I count Muslims. One Muslim comes to Jesus. Two Muslims come to Jesus. Three Muslims come to Jesus. Oh, Lord, may it be so for your honor and for your glory. Four Muslims come to Jesus. You have heard that Muslims all over the world are coming to Jesus. You've heard that. My friend from Iran says it's like God is running a special on Muslims right now. <laughs> and I wonder if what's happening in the Muslim world is the answer to some sweet lady's prayer of faith. Pray, pray, pray. 
Well, you guys know the rest of our story, how for months it looked like our release was right around the corner, and then something would happen, and negotiations would break down again, and we'd be back to square one again, and how that went on for what seemed like forever to us. And you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me. But I got to come home and raise my children. Can I tell you about the kids? I think we have pictures. Um, here are me and my kids. You can see they're grown now. They love the Lord, and they have hearts for missions. The boy on this side became a missionary pilot like his dad. He was in Botswana, Africa for some time. I had three grandchildren in Africa at one point. They've got some health issues, so he's flying out of Orlando right now. This is my daughter, Mindy. She married a New Tribes Mission MK, a missionary kid from Paraguay, South America, and he's the youth pastor at our church. And the boy there in the middle is Zachary. He's still in Bible college in uh, Kansas City at Calvary University, slowly making his way through a master's degree. And God's been really good to me. And here's the whole bunch, the next one. There we are, the Motley crew. And the next one is me and my grandchildren. And these boys over here have already accepted Jesus as their Savior. So that does my grandma's heart really good. What a gift from him. Several years ago, an American couple that works in a maximum security prison in Manila contacted me. They had gotten a hold of some comic books that our foundation printed. We did a comic book series, 13 comic books on the lives of the prophets, those men that Muslims believe to be prophets, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus, 13 of them. We did them in Tausug. That's the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf speak. So these this couple gave them out in the prison, and the guys loved them. They said, anything else you print, we want to read. But they said, the interesting thing that has happened here is these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. Some of them are coming to us saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names. Maybe I know them. Sure enough, here came the names. Guys, we walked with, lived with, starved with 23 or so of them in maximum security for the rest of their lives. In prison is Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, Zacharias, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets and we just let him think that. <laughs> also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's job was to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would help charge the sat phones and the cell phones so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth. And since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he found himself with no family, no means of support. He joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. Martin and Daoud would discuss all sorts of things, from jihad to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. Also in jail is Bashir. We called him Bas for short. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. And several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg. It had to be amputated. He sends me notes every once in a while. Could I read the first one that I ever got from him? We had to have it translated. It was written in his dialect. It says, I am Bas. I, Bas, wrote you to ask you how you are. How about you there, Gracia? I'm here now at maximum security, and my foot was cut off. Do you still remember the experiences we had? 
like no? <laughs> Sounds like summer camp, doesn't it? I still remember every time I cook food, I cook eel good. He did cook eel good. At one point, we were starving, and we came across a mountain stream that had eel in it, and the guys crafted fish traps from stuff they harvested in the jungle, and they caught the eel, and that's what we ate for several days, and Bas was the cook. Everything you said, I will never forget. Even though I'm here in jail, I has no fault. Yeah, right, he's the kid that one day chopped a guy's head off came up the hill with blood spattered all over his yellow t-shirt. How can he say he has no fault? I also told you, when I'm free, I will go with you to America. But my dreams did not go through. My dream was to become a businessman, but it did not materialize because I'm in jail. It's difficult to be in jail. It's very hot here, and it's pitiful here, and no one visits me here. I want to see you if you have a picture to send me. Take care always, and he signs it, your friend. The letters aren't the only things I'm getting from the prison. Uh, Will and Joni brought this one year um, a T-shirt that a bunch of the guys have signed, Inmate Maximum. I said, Will and Joni, what am I supposed to do with that T-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. This couple and I get together every other summer to figure out ways to show the love of Christ to those guys. And I could spend an hour telling you that story, but awesome things are happening. These guys are reading the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies. I'm supporting several of the poorest of the poor, so they have some means of buying soap so they can take a bath or wash their clothes. And I don't even know if these are good ideas or not. Maybe they're stupid ideas. But we're just asking God to bless our meager efforts, and he has. So far, four former Abu Sayyaf have come to know Jesus as their Savior. <laughs> One of them, a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him. A new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord. And we really can't believe what God's doing, and we just keep praying, and I wonder if you'd want to pray too. When you think about me and my story, pray for those guys in prison, especially Zacharias, Zachary, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. God can do anything, can't he? Yeah. And it's not over till it's over. And I think that God let me be a small part of what's happening in that prison just to encourage me because he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations not to crush us? but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work. And God's work is good. It's always good. In the middle of the mess, what God's doing in the mess is good because he's good. And I've been encouraged that there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe it's downright uncomfortable for you. You don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden, you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God's Almighty. He can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Keep on when it's hard. When you feel like giving up, when you don't see any fruit, when you don't know what you're doing, just keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. There are a few things that I learned from Martin while I was in the jungle that still influence me and give me direction today. Several things he used to say that are very appropriate for life in Rose Hill, Kansas. And I don't want you to think that I live my life based on the sayings of Martin Burnham, because sometimes what he said was, sit down and shut up. So 
He said some good things. One was something he would say when I had had it, and I would decide, I'm not moving another step. I'm done. They can shoot me right now. I'm done with this hostage thing. And he said, Gracia, what would the kids say if they could talk to you right now? They would say, Mom, keep going today, because tomorrow you might get to go home. I still tell myself that. When I'm having a hard day or I'm discouraged, keep going today. Tomorrow, you might get to go home. Another thing he said was one day during a gun battle, the military was coming up the river shooting at us, and this particular group didn't know anything about selective gunfire. It was just Rambo-style shoot up the camp, and the only place for us to go to get away was to climb a cliff, this bluff. So we started hoisting ourselves up. We would put our feet on rocks that were jutting out from the side. We would grab the roots of the trees sticking out, the tree trunks, and we were just pulling ourselves up the bluff. And after a while, um, I was spent physically. I couldn't go on. And I just fell apart, you know, starting to cry like I always did. I can't climb anymore. I can't go on. You just go on without me. And Martin stopped and looked and said very kindly but pointedly, now is not the time to cry. Crying takes energy. Let's get through this and you can cry later. And we kept climbing. And I still say that to myself when all I want to do is sit down and have a good cry because I'm tired or I feel alone or I don't have the courage to face the day that's in front of me and I'll sit down on the bed to cry and Martin's words will come back, back, back to me. Um, now's not the time to cry. Crying takes energy. Let's get through this and you can cry later. And I'm reminded of the promise in the scripture that one day God will wipe every tear from our eye. And I figure when it's finally time to sit down and have a good cry over life, there's not going to be any reason anymore. <laughs> and the other wise thing Martin said in the jungle was something the pastor shared. Our last day of captivity, we were wandering through the jungle lost. Our guides had never been in that area before. We'd been told that a ransom payment was waiting for us in this elusive village that we couldn't find. And what we didn't know was there was no ransom and there was no village. And we were weak and exhausted, so discouraged. We sat down for a rest, and Martin said, Gracia, I've been thinking about Psalm 100 all day long, especially that first verse that talks about serving the Lord with gladness. He said, this does not seem like serving the Lord. We've been walking through this jungle for over a year. But let's, by faith, accept that that's what we're doing, that we're serving the Lord here, and let's do it with gladness. And minutes later, the military came over the hill, opened fire on us, and Martin was dead. Some of his last words to me, I'm determined to serve the Lord with gladness. It's my new life's theme. I'm going to do what God's given me to do, do it with my whole heart, do it with gladness. And as I close tonight, could I tell you about Martin's gravestone? Martin always told us what he wanted on his gravestone. We all knew, the kids knew, and then he died. And it came time to go to the monument company and make some choices. And the kids said, Mom, you know what you have to do, right? But Grandma and Grandpa are never going to allow it, Martin's mom and dad. I said, well, I'll go with Grandma and Grandpa. You stay home and you pray. I wish you could see his gravestone. Has a beautiful tropical scene on the front, mountains in the background, a little Nipa tribal hut, a Cessna aircraft landing on a short strip near the hut. It has Martin's name and his birth date and his death date on it with a cross in between the dates to show that something very significant happened between those two dates. And on the back, in smaller print, in quotes, what Martin always wanted on his tombstone, it says, 
it wasn't pilot error with his initials and a smiley face. <clears throat> Martin didn't want to die in an airplane crash that he caused. You pilots, you can relate, can't you? Martin loved what he did, and we are so proud of the monument to his memory. None of us knows the length of the race we're to run. We're not told in the beginning. And on every man's tombstone, there is a dash between the birth date and the death date. I've heard it referred to as the dash between the dates. Every tombstone has that small hyphen that represents a life. We only get one dash. No one gets two. There are no do-overs, and everyone dies. And I'm encouraged again to live a life worthy of the Lord. The only thing that will last in eternity is what you and I do for God here on earth. So let's make the dash that we're given one that really counts. And I thank you for having me, Pastor. Would you uh, remain standing, please? Uh, historical moment, because what you heard is uh, not a story on reality television. What you heard was the truth and nothing but the truth. You heard a modern-day miracle about how to manage tough, tough uh, circumstances. So I'm going to ask you, just in case, to bow your heads, and those of you who are online listening going to ask you to give consideration how is your life how are you doing as it relates to your relationship with eternity are you assured of the fact that should you breathe that last breath should circumstances in your life dramatically change and you find yourself totally out of control of anything that you considered stable and now it's gone how does eternity look for you? If you have a question mark there, if you're unsure and you're not willing to take a chance, the reality is, according to the Scripture, unless you know Jesus and you have confessed Him as your Lord, then you are without hope. But hope is not something that is ominous. It's not something that's abstract. It is something that's real. And hope is found in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who gave hopelessness an answer that is the hope of the world, the Lord. So I'm going to ask everyone to repeat this prayer with me. Those of you who are online, who are watching, and I'm asking those of you in this room, Let's repeat it together. Dear Lord Jesus, I have failed. I have made mistakes. I have been stubborn. I have been rude. I have been dishonest. I have been deceitful. But tonight, I confess my sins. I am lost. So I'm asking you to come into my heart Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Purify my mind. Purify my spirit. Purify my inner person. As I pray now and I confess my sins, I believe by faith I am a new creature through Jesus Christ. So take my life. Use it as you choose for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen? Put your hands together. Let's thank God for those who prayed that prayer. We believe that. We believe that with all of our heart. How did we deal with, uh, if you heard what I heard, you heard an invitation to say, be obedient to the call of God. You don't ever know when God is going to call you. Wayne and Tammy Brown 
Uh, Wayne was called in one of our missions trips. He felt the nudge or the urge of the Holy Spirit. Wayne had a very secure job with Publix, I think in the IT division there. And we were up on a, we were up on a, on a, a building that was a frame uh, trying to, to tie it off and through the power of construction. And he said to me, and it was a very uncomfortable place and very unsure, but on missions trips, you really just depend on God. I know this is the dumbest, most stupid thing I've ever done before. I would not do this in the States at all. But Lord, I'm on this mission trip. So some way or another, you give us a covering. And it was there, he said, on that trip, I felt the call of the Holy Spirit. I felt the call of God to be a missionary. They had to fight to get to become missionaries. But today, for now many, many years, many, many years have been faithful to the call of God just like that. How wonderful, how wonderful is that? Randy Herring came from Alabama here to Southeastern University to go to school, had his own cement business, concrete and bricklaying and masonry and all of that. But he never made the move. And one day he and I were down, I don't know, somewhere digging a septic tank, you know? And I said to him, I said, you know, Randy, you keep talking about missions. You keep talking about the call of God. You keep talking about it, but you're just piddling around. What you need to do is get off the stump. You need to get busy and make up your mind. If you're going to be a missionary, be a missionary. And if you're not, quit playing games and get out of the business. How many appreciate a good straight word once in a while? And he said, boy, you hit me with a ton of bricks. But you don't play around, do you, Pastor? No, unless I choose to. But I got to tell you, from that, from that, he came out of that hole we were digging and got busy and started. And now a wonderful, wonderful ministry in a kid's camp that we support. You never know how God's going to do it. But here's what I encourage you to do. If you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit, say, you know what? I'm scared to death. And you can't get away because it feels like the enemy or it feels like the hand of the Holy Spirit's got you. Don't fight that. Because the happiest days of your future will be found when you're obedient to God. And his love will cover you. So as Gracious said earlier, talk with us. We'll pray with you. We'll believe God with you. And if you feel that, don't fight that. Because God will make a way through a maze of circumstances you will never figure out by the grace of God. And if you need prayer, you feel God speaking, we're going to have an altar moment here. If you need healing, you want to be prayed for, you want to be anointed, or you say, I feel like God's calling me, you know, come on down. Some of us will pray with you right here, right now, and we'll believe God, and then we'll give the benediction in just a moment. So as we sing, you respond as God directs your heart. Would you do that? Here we go. <laughs>